Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. I'm here with Professor Greg Wolf. He is a British ancient historian, archaeologist, and academic with an expertise in the Roman Empire. Since 2015, he has been the director of the Institute of Classical Studies and a professor of classics at the University of London. He has written multiple books, including Rome and Empire Story, Tales of the Barbarians, Ethnography and Empire in the Roman West, and most recently, The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History, which came out in 2020. And that's the one I think we're going to be focusing on uh, in this interview. So did I miss anything or leave anything major out? I don't think so. Um, perhaps the only thing to add is that I'm going to UCLA in the summer and taking up a position there as um, a Ronald Malor professor in ancient history. Great, great. Yeah, I think I saw. I think I saw you on their website, and I wasn't sure. Uh, I wasn't sure if you were there yet, or if you've been there in the past, or something like that. No, I'm in transit, so to speak. <laughs> okay, great, awesome. Well, that'll be good. Um, so I guess my first question is just uh, pretty basic. Why did you choose to write a book about ancient cities? What about that concept or institution kind of drew you to it? Well, it's one of the great stories of, of ancient and indeed of sort of all history is the story of how we became urban. And um, I remember this being impressed on me when I was an undergraduate student um, listening to visiting speakers and a guy who was a specialist in early medieval cities came and he drew a big chart on the board and he said, look, um, before 4000 BC, no cities. And then there's lots. And then he just drew the line going up. And then he said, and then from about 200, it goes down again, sometimes to zero, sometimes almost zero, depending where you are in the world. And then it comes up again after 600. And he said, this is the really big story. Of, age, of history and everybody's looking at such small chunks you can't see it so I've always been interested in those very big stories and then I guess I started teaching it when I worked at Oxford and they set up an anthropology archaeology degree and it's always been the back of my mind so it was just enormous fun to to take the time to educate myself and then I hope others with some sense of what it looks like on this global scale. Awesome awesome definitely so you talked about in the book a little bit about the distinction between a village and a city and uh, that it wasn't just about size, but there's something more tangibly different uh, with what we think of as a city in the earliest cities. Can you just talk a little bit about the earliest cities and what kind of made them different than what we had seen before that? Yeah, sure. Yes. I mean, ever since we became agriculturalists which happened by stages sometimes gradually it after the end of the last um ice age people have occasionally been able to live together in larger numbers than small groups and these usually that means they're living together in what we call villages and a village has a few hundred people maybe a few thousand but they mostly do the same things they're they're all fishermen they're all farmers they uh 
they have roughly the same amount of wealth. The families look very similar. If you look at them archaeologically, you see the same house plans reproduced again and again, but nothing very special stands out. What, and the city is different. I mean, some, some, of course, they really are enormously bigger than that, but most ancient cities were very small, same size as big villages. But the difference is now you've got wealthy people and poor people. Now you've got craftsmen and farmers. Now you have maybe priests and kings and scribes who are supported by the labour of others. And if you look through these cities, they become archaeologically, they look different too. So you have one or two houses a lot bigger than the others. Maybe there's public spaces. There's usually collected shrines. So a city is a village that's become more internally differentiated. So that's the bit. It's, it's, you could say more complex, although that sort of implies it's very simple being a hunter-gatherer. And of course, it's pretty complicated being a hunter-gatherer in some environments. But simply in terms of what it looks like on the ground, you're seeing more differences. People are less alike. Families are, le are not all the same anymore. Okay. The specialization and kind of yeah. the internal structure of how it works. Okay. So in your book, um, can you kind of just let, paint the picture a little bit of where some of the earliest cities were arising and, and when that was happening? Sure. Yeah. Um, there are groups of cities that appear um, in the Bronze Age, in Egypt, in the Valley of the Nile, and in uh, what's now Iraq. So that's both in the south of it, so places like Ur, or near the mud, mud flats, the, the floodplains of the Euphrates and the Tigris, and also much further inland, up on what's now the Syrian border, Tel Brak. And there are cities that appear in the valley of the Indus that uh, is a huge river system that divides Pakistan and India, others in North China. And those were the first ones that got spotted by in the beginning of the 20th century. But now we see more and more inventions of cities. So uh, we know about cities in the Amazon. We know about uh, the city of the mound builders in the southwest or what's now the southeast United States. Uh, we're aware of cities appearing on virtually every continent except for Antarctica and Australasia. At some point or other, people develop these cities in the Andes. So they no longer look quite as similar as they used to. People used to say, well, it's always sort of river valleys or the Valley of Mexico, not exactly a river valley. And now we're seeing that cities popped up all over the world a few thousand years after agriculture. So we've got a few thousand years of, of population growth first. And then... Probably we don't know all the early cities because there must have been lots of very early ones that failed, experiments that disappeared before they left any archaeological traces. But we're pretty sure now that there's you know, maybe a dozen different places where cities were invented independently of each other. Okay, wow. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, can we, We've talked some about the Bronze Age on this show. Um, and one thing that I was just curious, there's this strange mystery of kind of an something of an urban collapse in the 12th century. I'm curious if you cover any of that in your book and what your thoughts are and sort of, um, you know, uh, I'm talking about uh, the end of the Bronze Age and, and that kind of thing. Um, is that something that you get into much? Uh, or, or yes, I, yeah, I do with a little bit. So and it's because the second part of the book is mostly about the Mediterranean and this late Bronze Age collapse, it's sometimes called, 
it's pretty important for us because we get to see two different urban civilizations creating the Mediterranean, one in the Bronze Age, so in the middle of the second millennium BC, and then another one that starts about 500 years later. In between, there's this trough, there's this period where writing systems are forgotten, um, societies become much, much simpler, back to a world of villages, if you like, and then the whole thing rebuilds a bit between sort of 1,800 BCE. So I deal with it a little bit, but it is quite a local phenomenon. I mean, it happens, it happens in the Aegean world. It happens in some parts of what's now Western Southern Turkey. Uh, sometimes we see a political collapse. So the end of the Mycenaean kingdom of the fall of the Hittite empire. Go a bit further east and south. Well, Egypt has a bad time, but nowhere near such a bad time. Some bits of Syria have a bit of a bump, but it's quickly recovered. So it doesn't seem to be the same everywhere. And I mean, if you look back on a global scale, it's certainly not happening across the globe. It's not a sort of you know, planet-wide phenomenon. Interesting, interesting. So it's sort of isolated to the dynamics be between those um, cities that in the scheme of the world weren't that far apart. Um, That's right. I mean, some people think that that the kind of urbanism that appears in the Bronze Age is just a bit more fragile, generally, that it's it's um, not exactly a house of cards, but it depends on, on fewer other things. It's quite easy for that top level to collapse back down again. Um, but it could equally be something that's very specific to the Aegean world, and it could be some people think about... Um, political failure there's a rebellion from below some people think there might be a climate dimension in here though quite difficult to pin it down people have tried hard to link it to volcanoes um some think that, it, that some of these societies are too dependent on their trade connections to others so that when one falls down there's a kind of domino effect and that longer established urban civilizations like those of egypt and and syria are much more resilient, that, they're, that they've got deeper roots, if you like. So some things stop working for them, the other things still carry on working. So um, it's it's more than a bit of a mystery. It's a huge mystery. But yeah. People are crawling all over it. We'll get it. We'll get there soon. Don't worry. <laughs> well, and, and so I'm just kind of going through this uh, chronologically as as I, as the way I'm imagining things. And um, you can tell me if there's a better way to do this, but after the Bronze Age, uh, moving forward a number of centuries, we get to the ancient cities that I think a lot of listeners, including myself, are going to imagine as the the prototypical ancient city. You know, we think of Athens and we think of Thebes and some of these places in these Greek city states, especially where, you know, I, I think probably when a lot of people think of an ancient city, they might immediately think of, of, of Athens or something like that. And so um, going forward to some of those cities uh, that are closer to the classical era of ancient Greece, um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the rise of the city-states and, and just what those cities were like uh, in, in the region at the time? Sure, well, we're talking about the middle of the last millennium now. So um, the Athens that we know through the writings of Herodotus and Thucydides and the great tragedians, that's fifth century Athens. And then, you know, it's about fourth century Athens as well. And this is, if you like, when the lights go on, because we have prose and histories 
and we have some inscriptions put up and we can see this network of cities most of which claim to be pretty ancient some of them really are and they extend all the way from Cyprus in the east to southern Italy, Sicily, uh, southern France even, Marseille um, and then there's also other cities from created by Phoenicians. Now what they look like in the fifth century they don't quite look spectacular yet so there are big marble temples but maybe not many other really big buildings. If you go to Athens today the really big ancient buildings you see are all from the Roman period. The theatre of Dionysus is Hellenistic, the uh, the, temp the Odeon of Herodotus is later. Um, so they're already beginning to acquire monuments. They're using marble. Um, their counterparts in in Italy are the Etruscan cities, great ones like Vey and Tarquinia and, and, and Rome from the fifth century onwards with its enormous circuit wall. So you begin to get a number of these cities which uh, by the fifth century have become they separate out from the rest of the pack. There's maybe a thousand cities in the ancient Med at that time, but there's this handful of, of a dozen or so whose names you keep hearing again. You know, ones you've mentioned, the ones I've mentioned. And it's pretty true that almost all the cities that existed by 500 BC are still there a thousand years later. So there's a sort of this pattern is laid down. And um, of course, some, some new cities appear, some cities grow some like thieves grow and then shrink again but by and large the cast of characters has been assembled on the stage and it's going to remain there for at least a thousand years and in the eastern mediterranean for a bit longer interesting so there's a certain staying power to these to some of these major cities once they're founded and once they get to a certain size um interesting i'm i'm curious um I notice in, in kind of reading through some of the descriptions and things of your book, you refer to a term um, called urban mirage and that in the current day, and, and I found this to be really fascinating. Um, and I apologize, there's some kind of siren happening miles away that you might be able to pick up. But, um, but anyways, you talk about how in modern times, we have a little bit of a misconception about kind of the size and scale and grandiosity of some of these ancient cities. And, um, and we've sort of tried to reconstruct some of that in our modern architecture and places like Washington DC and things like that. And I guess, can you talk a little bit about kind of the reality of the, of the size and grandness of some of these cities in the ancient world? Yeah, no, you're right that the the urban styles that are created in the nineteenth um, century, in particular, by the capitals of empires, which I'd include places like Washington and New York, uh, but also thinking about Berlin, London, Paris, um, these look back to classical models. They have temples or temple-like buildings, though now they're often museums and town halls, columns, pediments, steps up. They use marble, shiny stone. And so that looks back to a classical period, but if you were to go back to the ancient world, you'd find the scale's totally different. I mean, you must have had this experience wandering around an ancient city that you've read about in the history books and thought, this is amazing. And then you discover you walked across in 20 minutes. 
and it's you know it's it, the civic center is tiny compared to our civic centers and this is really just down to demography and economics that um most cities in the ancient world had fewer than 5,000 people in them. Now today, that's a pretty small village. Um, you get some, 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 ha some cities or towns, independent towns, which have that scale, but mostly in the global north, and actually even in the global south, cities are much, much bigger than that. So Athens at its peak, maybe 30,000, 40,000 people, that would be a market town in the present UK. And if you think about cities with 5,000 people in, then, you know, it's you probably do know all the celebrities by sight. You keep crossing paths with them in the market. So it's a, it's a world that's much smaller and the buildings are smaller. It takes to Augustus 40 years or so to build the Temple of Mars Altor in Rome. Um, and it's still, you know, it doesn't match most civic libraries built in the 19th and 20th centuries in scale. So, yeah, there's a there's a there's a huge sort of um, it's almost like you imagine your grandfather who you haven't met or you barely remember, and he just seems much much larger than life. And the the, the great anecdotes, the things he used to say, the what he did in World War Two, that all seems spectacular. And that's that is the 19th century looking back at classical Greece. Okay, fascinating. So, wow, I'm surprised to hear that Athens at its height wasn't larger. I mean, I, I would have, if I just had to guess, I would have guessed much higher population. I mean, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky here, which is not, which is a decent sized city, um, but it's not seen as a huge city by any means. And I think there's 500,000 people or, you know, uh, up to a million people in the area. And so, um, yeah, you know, today, by today's standards, a, a city of, of 50,000, I mean, I, I would think of it as a city, but it would be a pretty small city. Um, There's probably only two or three of those in the ancient world at that size, at the size of Louisville, Kentucky. And wow. Wow. I mean, London, so, London has about 8 million people in it, and um, that would fit. Now, the city of Rome, eight or ten times into, the, into London. You could get that at, the, at its peak, when the emperors are there. The city right. of Rome is, is only an eighth or tenth the size of London today. Wow. Um, I, I'm, doing, I'm calling in from a Scottish fishing village, actually, um, on, the, on the North Sea. And it has a population of about three and a half thousand. It seems a pretty small place by UK standards. It's got sort of one grocer's, one butcher's. It's got a it's got a, a proper food store. It's got because it's Scotland. It's got four pubs as well, and two churches at the opposite end of the village. But yeah, this this would be a medium sized city in the ancient world, and it definitely isn't today. Wow, wow, interesting to think about the scale and how that's changed. So. Mm. Um, so kind of continuing to move forward, you mentioned Rome. Um, what uh, role did the rise of the city of Rome play in the ancient world? And was Rome, did Rome reach a scale that was far beyond a place like Athens? Uh, just, uh, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about, you know, uh, Rome, it's such an iconic city in, in our minds today. Um, and still yeah. today, there's all kinds of uh, ruins, and it's amazing just to walk through Rome. So, uh, Rome's a spectacular place, isn't it? Because it's um, 
Yeah, Sigmund Freud used it as a metaphor for the for the for the human mind. He said, yeah, the human mind is built up with strata of all its previous experiences are still there somewhere. And that's like Rome. It's that you've got you wander through Rome and you pass a bit of archaic temple and then a uh, a palace built by the emperors and then a, a medieval church and a Renaissance palazzo and it keeps on going. So yeah, Rome's amazing. It's in the ancient world, and this this applies to the ancient Near East and China and everywhere else as well. The really big city, the only really big cities, are those that are the centres of political power, and that's because they can't feed themselves otherwise. You simply can't feed a population unless you can draw resources from a huge area around it. And well, modern cities can do this through the market, through the economy. But really big ancient cities, they all depended on some kind of imperial power so yeah athens might seem small but in the term in the fifth century it's run the biggest because it's a major center because it can get grain from the black sea and from egypt because it has tribute coming to it from all the other little cities of the aegean world and, and some from beyond now rome grows a bit later and by the end of the last millennium bc so time of Julius Caesar, Emperor Augustus. Its population may have reached a million, maybe 800,000. So, and it's probably been doubling each generation for a few hundred years. So it's already quite, it's already one of those sort of big-ish cities in the fifth century. We don't know so much about it because there isn't all the writing that you've got from Athens. When, it, when we begin to see it's in historical light, which is more or less the late third, early second century, where we have Polybius's history, the writings of Cato. A few Greek sources are beginning to notice Rome, often in a rather nervous way, and uh, writing about it. And from this point on, it's um, it's clearly already a bit of a world beater. And there's there's a very clear relationship that as as Rome knocks out Macedon and Syria and Egypt, and it destroys Carthage. Um, so the city of Rome gets bigger and you still have the sort of, it's like the fossils of these great capitals, so Alexandria and Carthage and uh, Philippi and Antioch, Seleucia, uh, Pergamum. These were all once the centres of great kings. They're still quite big cities in the Roman Empire, but Rome has got the resources now and it draws in slaves, it draws in grain. By the time of the Emperor Augustus, it's drawing in building materials from the eastern desert of Egypt, from North Africa, from other bits of Italy. It's getting timber supplied to it. No longer just all the stuff that comes down the Tiber. So it's a huge centre of consumption. It's supplied from all over the world. And, and that's, that's just down to the fact that Rome rules the rest of the Mediterranean. Okay. Okay. Is it fair? I'm curious in reading and studying uh, people like Alexander the Great, you learn about cities like Babylon and then later Alexandria, a city which he founded. And these both, you know, were, were large cities or became large cities. Did Rome reach a scale that was sort of unprecedented in the ancient world? Would yes, it did. Yes. Almost certainly. In the Mediterranean, certainly. Yes. Alexandria maybe got to half a million, maybe a bit less. Um, the big capital that, that um, Alexander destroyed is Persepolis, the city of the Persians created by the Achaemenid emperors. And, um, and then he founded his own cities afterwards. The, the areas where 
The, the, the earliest sort of rivals, perhaps before this, are the great cities of the Assyrian emperors, like uh, Nineveh, Nimrud, and so on. So what now in northern Iraq, near Mosul, these were gigantic cities, which entire populations were moved there. I mean, including, of course, notoriously the Jews were moved, and people from all over the empire were just said, right, you go and live in the city. First build it, then live in it, or live outside it and farm the land. And some were spectacular failures that the next king built his city somewhere else and then the great city disappeared but if you read the book of Job and what he says about Nineveh you get a sense that already there are these colossal world cities but in the world the Near East now Romans Greeks knew not very much about them by the time they came on the scene but it's the, the pattern repeats itself every great empire creates a great city okay how how was I'm curious about how historians and archaeologists um, would are able to estimate the size of, of some of these cities. Um, it, did the cities themselves keep records of, of population and things like that? Or are we using other kinds of evidence to try to estimate how many people might have lived there? It's, it is difficult. I mean, what, one the easy but not very reliable ways you simply look at the built-up area the air inside the walls the area of houses outside the walls and then you have we have some pretty good idea from comparisons to the the sort of densities of population that are realistic in cities and if you look at the work of, of mike smith from arizona who's done a lot of comparative studies of urbanism around the world you can get a pretty good idea about what's a reasonable guess so that's one way but then for some cities, you've got other data. So for Rome, we've also got um, the aqueducts, where we've got a sense of how much water is being supplied at each period. And also in a period where they suddenly start creating more aqueducts, that's a pretty good guide. They need more water. Same for Constantinople. And then there are a few other records. So we have some idea of the number of people in Imperial Rome who are entitled to a free share of grain um, from the emperors. So this gives us well, a minimum. The difficulty then is how many people don't get the grain or how is, is each grain dole supporting one people or a family? So it's, it isn't easy. And then there's a few, occasionally historians tell you, and that's the worst kind of evidence because you just don't really know if they know what they're talking about. So, um, you know, how, how would you know? You know, if, 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 if I travelled through, um, I don't know, some city I've never been to, if I travelled through Tokyo, how good would my estimate be of the number of people that I, I know it's big? I know it's really, really big. Right. Uh, but, you know, would I get it within a factor of two, factor of ten? I have no idea. So um, so we, we just put together all the different kinds of evidence we can. We, we try and look at what's plausible. Um, for the archaeologically inclined, looking at the scale of, of, of the building, and then also then factoring in, is this the kind of city that has high rise? Rome does have high rise, not, not by modern standards, but multi-story accommodation. Some cities don't. Some of the cities the Maya built in, in Yucatan and around a very low density. So a big city might not have so many people in. And that's probably true of some Roman cities. It's probably true of, of cities in earthquake zones like Pompeii, where it would have been crazy to build very high. Probably true of some of the big cities in the north of France. And the case you find a a Roman city where you can see they have big plans. There's a huge circuit wall, 
but big chunks of it never got filled in. So there were big areas that were always vacant lots. Okay. So it's um, it's it's not an exact science, but um, we do the best we can. Is is there? Uh, it reminds me a little bit of when you when you look at some of the ancient historians that were trying to estimate the size of armies and different things like that, and how modern historians have revised and said, well, they said it, there was a million, you know people in the army they face, but based on, you know, various pieces of evidence that must have been an exaggeration and, and that kind of thing. And so um, I'm sure the, I'm sure the ancient estimates around the size of some of these cities may, may have also been exaggerated. Um, oh, I agree. And also the scale of disasters, how many people died in disasters, how many people died in earthquakes, things like that. And they're always big numbers, and but it's very difficult to control them down. Yeah. Is there, I'm curious, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Gladiator uh, with Russell Crowe. And it, I think it, it came out when I was a teenager and it just blew my mind. And I just remember kind of all roads leading to Rome and the way it portrayed Rome was incredible. Is there, uh, do you remember that depiction? Is there any kind of popular culture depiction in movies or TV or anything like that that you've, that has stuck out to you as saying, that that seems like the most accurate to me or that, you know, that has caught your eye. Well, I mean, ones that catch my eye, I mean, di accurate is difficult, isn't it? One of, the th one of the difficulties with cities and CGI, uh, like those great Colosseum shots in Gladiator, which I agree is an amazing movie, yeah. is that um, often it just looks too perfect. So I remember going to a conference in, in the German Institute in Rome where people were sort of showing these various visualizations and Someone stood up at the at the back and she said, well, look, I showed these to my students and they said, these are rubbish compared to the video games I play. They, these reconstructions. And um, and actually, the city the cityscape that's really caught my eye recently was um, the Assassin's Creed Alexandria, yes. which is so amazing. And um, it's just extraordinary to follow around. And, and a, a month or so after I'd seen this, I... Kind of, there was a message on Twitter from a, a French academic I know who spent his entire life working on ancient libraries, a very distinguished man. And he said, does anybody, I'm doing a public presentation, does anyone have any depictions? And he meant sort of paintings or, or line drawings at the Library of Alexandria. So I sent him a link to a clip of this and it blew his mind too. And he was just astonished, staggered at this. So I think Assassin's Creed is, has got, um, that's quite, quite, a, quite a difficult bar to beat at the moment. I've noticed that there have been some scholars. In fact, I interviewed a scholar who was who had done a walkthrough of one of the ancient, uh, I think, Mycenae in Assassin's Creed and the way it was depicted. Uh, it's kind of an incredible franchise. I don't even really play video games, but I almost I almost want to go. Uh, my friends do, and I want to go and play Assassin's Creed and just kind of wander around some of these places. It's Pretty amazing. They well, must and I don't either. I think that they've rumbled people like you and I, Patrick, because there are verse that you can use Assassin's Creed in a kind of non-player educational mode and just enjoy it. And yeah, exactly. Or, and I, or you can find a teenager to do it for you, and that works just as well. It's funny because I have a kind of a running joke with my friends who play video games. That in some of these games, I don't even care about the fighting and the kind of the task. I just want to sort of wander around and just explore because it's kind of an amazing environment to see they must be bringing in um some high level uh historians and consultants on some of these games to 
to yeah it's all meant to involve you isn't it i was on a, a chat with some friends a while ago and they were saying well what you know it's locked down how do you concentrate what do you listen to and people say oh well i i listen to eric Sartre. i listen to philip glass and, and then someone came in and said the most the best thing i find to help concentrate is listening to the soundtrack from skyrim <laughs> we all went and tried this and it was <laughs> it's awesome. that's awesome well okay so i have i just have one or two more questions and and um this is sort of just a a personal question if after looking at all these ancient cities if you could live in one of them what would it be and what time period what you know what are you drawn to i mean these questions it always depends on who you are doesn't it i mean if you could live in one of these cities as a slave would be a bit different than if you lived in one of them as a somebody relatively relatively healthy and comfortable um Let's say that I, I, I love I love port cities. I was brought up by the sea. I live by the sea now, and um, so I think you know somewhere like somewhere like Puteoli, the the southernmost port of Rome in Campania, with boats coming in from Egypt and people from all over the world and different languages being spoken there. That could be pretty cool. And the and the volcanoes behind that would be rather lovely. Um, so maybe somewhere like that. Um, the Greek islands are fantastic, but I don't know whether I would be able to stand living on a Greek island for long periods. It's a great place to go and relax for, you know, a few weeks. But um, I'm, I'm more of an urban person myself. Um, Have you had a chance to, to visit some of these, uh, whatever still exists of some of these different ancient cities? Yes, I've been very fortunate. I wrote my PhD on France and Roman France, so I've no the sites of the French cities pretty well and um, I've been lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in Italy and so and Spain so I know those quite well um, bits of the Aegean world yes I love Istanbul that's an amazing city um, I've, I've, but I've never been to Alex I've been to Egypt but never been to Alexandria I'd love to go to Alex I'd love to get to see the sisters Syria like a lot of people I thought oh well I'll go to Palmyra one day it won't take no 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 big rush and of course, then, then, then we had Islamic State and Daesh and all of that. So there's there's lots more for me to see. But all over Turkey, there's amazing places. Um, the city of Aspendos, which has not you, you always see pictures theatre, because it's been reconstructed to a very high level. So you've got the entire cavia and the, the the front to it, and you're completely in the bottom of of the, of the sort of semicircular well when you sit there. But climb up behind it onto the Acropolis and you just see a line of aqueducts crossing the countryside, bringing water in onto the, onto the top of the hill so that they can have a great monumental fountain there. Not, to, not because people are thirsty, there's a river below it and the cisterns, but because they wanted to have a spectacular fountain there. So cities like that are just amazing. So, um, and then, you know, wooded cities, extraordinary places. Yeah, I mean, there's so much still to see. I'd love to, I haven't, um, I, I have been to Europe and to Greece when I was younger, but I haven't been anywhere since I really got into the history of everything. And I just, it feels like such a missed opportunity. I had no idea what I was looking at or where I was. I was just 15, just kind of, yeah. you know, uh, probably stayed up too late and, you know, walking around Greek ruins, just having no clue. So I'm looking forward to going back soon. Um, so I, I think for the, kind of the last portion. I mean, Italy is a great place to visit because you can see. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You, you. 
Um, well, I, I was just saying, well, I have fortunately, I have been to Italy a, a few times and that was, I have good memories of walking around Rome and seeing the different kind of layers of civilization, like you said. Um, although again, I it's, it makes such a difference to actually read about it and study it before you see the places. Otherwise, you know, without the context, it's just, it just doesn't have the same impact. And so I'm, I'm most looking forward to going to Northern Greece some and going to some of the museums associated with Alexander the Great and the Macedonians and, and things like that. Um, I'd love to go and see, I don't know if this is even something that is available, but I'd love to see whatever ruins exist of Troy um, in Turkey, but that, I guess you have to cross into, into Turkey to do that. I don't know if that's commonly done or not, but. Um, it's quite easy. I, I, have, I haven't been to Troy, I've been to other cities in Turkey, uh, Izmir and Ephesus and um, uh, Pergamon. And yeah, Troy, I think it's easy to get to Troy, yes. Okay. And easy to get there from, from northern Greece. Um, and Macedonia is lovely, sort of Pella, Philippi, Vergin at the tombs. And just in a, a wonderful landscape as well. Great great green mountains, the kind you don't see in many bits of the Mediterranean. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to the most. So <clears throat> just uh, to, kind of, um, to kind of wind down the conversation, I, I think the last uh, question I have really is about the end of the ancient world. Um, my understanding is that the the fall of, of the Roman Empire is kind of seen as the end of what we describe as the ancient world. Is that correct? And sort of how did cities change as we move beyond the Roman age? It's, I think the story is different in different bits of the Roman world that for a long time, people who mostly study in the sort of European North Atlantic tradition, they, they look back through the eyes of what happened to the Western Empire, uh, because that's what, you know, the, Medi the Renaissance focused on, the dark period, and then before that, the light one, and so they think about the fall of Rome to the Goths, and they think about um, uh, barbarian kingdoms being set up. But, you know, Byzantium is still a Roman Empire, um, a thousand years after that. So there are still Roman emperors who regard themselves quite legitimately as heirs of Roman civilization and Greek culture in the 15th century. So in that sense, you know, things carry on much longer. And um, if you think about technology, some of the great technical feats created aqueducts, um, baths, uh, the domes and so on, which are being perfected throughout the Roman period, these are just picked up in the Islamic world and become the building blocks for a whole generation of amazing mosques all the way from from Syria out to southern Spain. And um, the same is true of Greek mathematics, which flows into this. So there's, there's some areas where there's a sudden break. And yes, the Western Empire is one of them, politically at any rate. Um, but there's other areas where there are all sorts of continuities. Medicine carries on uh, moving from Greek to Arabic. Um, when the Abbasid Caliphs commissioned translations, the bits of Aristotle and Galen that are important. So um, it's a it's a complicated story, but I don't I don't believe in a single fall of Rome. I think there's a that the, that coherence of a single great political entity that is bounded between the Gibraltar and um, and the Eastern Med. Well, that that that's gone. That's that that's passed away. But lots of the components of it are still growing and 
and taking new forms and passed on right the way through till, well, till, well, 500 years ago. Okay. Wow. Well, I want to uh, I want to remind listeners that we are talking about your most recent book, The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History, which came out last year and is available on Amazon, I'm assuming. And um, is there other is there other places where listeners can follow your work or see your books? Um, Amazon's as good a place as any, but all good bookshops, like they say, there's an Italian translation of the city's book out. And um there's a second edition, a bit of a revised and enlarged edition of Roman Empire story is going to come out um, in in June or July this year. So that's the next one to come out. Great, great. Okay, well, we'll post links to that on our website as well once they do. So, well, thank you, Professor Wolf, for talking to me. This has been really interesting. Um, your book uh, definitely caught my eye, and I can't wait to read all of it. Um, and hopefully, we'll get to talk uh, again soon about other ancient history topics. Oh, thanks, Patrick. It's been fun talking to you. Okay, and I'll be sure to send you the episode as soon as we post it. Sounds great. Okay. See ya. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.